This is Our American Stories, and a popular men's magazine recently posed one of the most intriguing pop culture questions of all time. Who was cooler, Steve McQueen or James Dean? The magazine's nod went to McQueen. Guess that's why he's been crowned the King of Cool. Steve McQueen was basically Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and Johnny Depp all rolled into one. In fact, Dear John's Channing Tatum and The Notebook's Ryan Gosling are currently battling it out to play the undeniably authentic McQueen in Hollywood's yet-to-be-shot biopic. But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries never tell you is what happened when there was no script to read and the cameras stopped rolling. This is Steve McQueen's story. Steve McQueen was the coolest of cool, with searing performances in blockbusters like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and Bullet, To his love for fast cars, beautiful women, and life on the edge, he was one of the hottest cultural icons of the 20th century. Steve McQueen was born on March 24, 1930, just five months after the Great Wall Street crash. Within months, his father abandoned both he and his 19-year-old alcoholic mother, Julian. His mother left Steve at her uncle Claude's farm. Julian remarried an angry and abusive alcoholic, returned for her then 12-year-old son, and moved to Los Angeles. The new stepfather began beating both of them. Steve would spend the rest of his life avoiding his mother and searching for his father. Here's Steve's friend, Hilly Elkins. It was that, that underpinning that made what he did so effective because there was a gentle and real core of sensitivity to the man. Uh, there was a little boy always in whatever he did. By the time Steve was 14, he'd become a tough street punk in Los Angeles and was arrested. When a traveling carnival passed through the town, Steve joined for a time, then returned to the streets where he was arrested again. On February 6, 1945, Steve was ordered to the Boys Republic in Chino, California, a reform school for juvenile boys with behavioral and emotional problems. During his 18-month stint at the Boys' Republic he adjusted to, and even thrived on, the structure and discipline. But Steve struggled with dyslexia. After the ninth grade, he dropped out of school. He emerged from the Boys' Republic with a steel-eyed coolness and detachment, inner rage and a rugged street cred. It was a character forged in his pain, but it would become an archetype that would define the modern movie star, many of whom he would never meet. Here's actor Mel Gibson from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. I had so many people I admired in films, and Steve was one of these guys. So I actually studied, you know, how he would move and, and the kinds of things he would do. And I think that he tended to be a kind of a guy who was out there and and disinhibited in some ways, almost to the point of criminality. There was something about him that was sort of delinquent. At 16 years of age, he became a deckhand on a boat when AWOL worked in a brothel in the Dominican Republic and was arrested for vagrancy and served 30 days on a southern chain gang. 
At 17, he joined the Marines and served as a tank driver and the mechanic. He saved five fellow Marines from a tank before it sank into the Arctic waters. On the other hand, he destroyed the engine of a tank trying to, quote, make it the fastest tank in the division. The Marines made a man out of me, McQueen later admitted. I learned how to get along with others, and I had a platform to jump off of. Here's McQueen biographer Marshall Terrell. So when Steve McQueen was discharged from the military, he was either going to go to Spain and, and learn how to tile set from the great masters, or he was going to become an actor. And the only reason why at the time he decided that he was going to become an actor was because acting had a lot of women. In 1950, at the age of 20, Steve headed to New York City and rented a flat in Greenwich Village. Here again is Marshall Terrell. Steve McQueen's first acting gig was uh, in the Yiddish theater. It turned out he was not a very powerful theater actor, and so he got fired, I think, after the first week. He was perfect for film because film would capture your subtleties. And then if, somehow or another, he got into Lee Strasberg's uh, actor studio. So that, that shows you the raw talent that Steve McQueen had. Here's Steve McQueen. I know that when I was studying in New York, uh, I knew that I couldn't afford to fail because uh, it was the only thing that I knew how to do and, and that uh, I didn't know any other trade. Despite some modest success, McQueen was getting nowhere fast until he met a rising Broadway star everyone was talking about. Here's Steve's first wife, Neil Adams McQueen. I was a Broadway baby. You know, I was, my life was all about dancing. I had just come out of Carnegie Hall. I had been rehearsing for a show called Pajama Game. There he was with a dog, a big dog. He had a German Shepherd with him. And he said, hi, you're pretty. And I said, I didn't know what to say. I just saw those blue eyes, you know. And uh, I said, well, uh, you're pretty too. I don't know. I, I suppose it opposites attract, but I guess it was ever a thing of... Uh fall in love with a girl at first sight, I guess that was it, because, boy, I sure had to chase her for a long time. He picked me up on his motorcycle one night, and that was it. Four months later, we were married. Neil would always say, well, this is what I see in you. If you give a little of that in your performance, then you will be recognized. And that's where you really see the first of the McQueen persona starting to emerge. McQueen had raw talent, but Neil's unstinting belief in her husband was one of the chief reasons he was finally able to open up and trust someone. So he took it to heart when she told her husband what she thought of his television appearances. I gotta let them do to stand on my two feet, Mr. Preston. They're shaving the hair off of my head and I know it, but my mother don't know it. Do you hear me? Here's Neil. Instinctively, I knew that what was showing through was not the man that I knew. I said, what I keep seeing is Brando or Dean, and it's just, you know, it doesn't work. And he realized that what I was talking about was right. So I said, smile a little bit. I know it's, it's a tough thing to do because you're playing a killer, but when you're talking to your mother or something, you've got to be able to show something of you. So he did, and for the first time, then he got fan mail, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's good. And he knew I was on his team. So true, and he was not Brando, and he was not James Dean, the king of cool Steve McQueen, his life story, after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the original score from Bullet, a terrific movie starring Steve McQueen, one of the great car chases in history. And let's return to his life story and Greg Hengler's work. Jack Harris was about to shoot a horror film that was to become a cult classic. The Bob, starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Here's movie critic Ben Mankiewicz. Now, of course, the, the Blob, with its sequels and its cult status, uh, became a rather significant film historically. But, of course, one of the reasons why it's a significant film historically is because it stars Stephen McQueen. Without McQueen, I'm not sure the Blob takes on that stature. There was uh, a silver lining in the Blob for McQueen in that producer, Dick Powell, uh, actually requested a screener of the film. And, um, you know, he was impressed with McQueen's performance. And that led to Wanted Dead or Alive. On September 6th, 1958, McQueen began starring as the bounty hunter, Josh Randall. Bounty hunter, ain't you? That's right. Here again is Hilly Elkins. Josh Randall was a reactor. That was Steve's greatest talent. I mean, it was body language. It was the face. It was the raised eyebrow, the look across the camera. And the camera loved Steve. He started experimenting with a camera to see what worked and didn't work. And he was very, he was very studious about that. And this man with no uh, literary or artistic background had this incredible animal instinct about himself and about what worked for himself. He drove the directors and the producers nuts. He drove them crazy. If the script didn't work, he threw it out. The result was a killer series. Wanted Dead or Alive lasted three years, and director John Sturgis, who was filming his 1959 film Never So Few, starring Frank Sinatra, had taken notice of Steve McQueen. Sturgis thought McQueen's natural cockiness would be perfect for the part. Here's Hilly. And Steve was now in the movie business. The opportunity for a picture called Magnificent Seven came up, and the rest is history. Second story window. Curtain moved. I'm not in a good position. Let him stick his neck out. The real star of that film supposedly was Yul Brynner, but Steve came off as the real star. Your gun has got you everything you have. Isn't that true? Yeah, sure, everything. After a while, you can call bartenders and faro dealers by their first name. Maybe 200 of them. Rented rooms you live in, 500. Home, none. Wife, none. Kids, none. Not because of his uh, act, his part in the uh, in the film, but just because of his presence. His presence was incredible, and that's when we really knew that he had a really big chance at making it. Here's actor Gary Oldman. You have two people on a screen, and you want to watch this person more than you want to watch that person. You just want to look at Steve McQueen. He walks onto the screen and he kidnaps you. Here's Steve McQueen's grandson, actor Stephen R. McQueen. Steve McQueen's characters all had very defining qualities. He was the guy that was tough, but without putting it in your face. He was the guy that you don't want to mess with, but you look up to him. And as an actor, yeah, those, those are the parts you want to play. And those are, that's who you want to be. You watch a movie and there's always that character that you want to be in. He found a way to always be that guy. 
the characters that you've played on the screen who have been loners, they've been um, rebellious a little bit, uh, moody. Um, have you interjected your own personality into these characters? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You are a loner? Yeah. Steve's daughter, Terry, was born in June 1959. Eighteen months later came a son, Chad, In 1962, director John Sturgis brought Steve a script for a movie called The Great Escape. Steve was not impressed and demanded rewrites for his character. Here's Steve. There's a great deal of compromise involved, you know, uh, in movies, I suppose. And I I get a bit uh, undone when people try to use me or uh, or there's compromises or injustice. And uh, I fly off the handle. McQueen said, I want you to assign a writer to me so that I can put my signatures on the film. McQueen gets the rewrites. His character gets enhanced significantly. And uh, oddly, the writer who comes in, Ivan Moffat, who'd been Oscar nominated, he's responsible for so many of the things in the movie which we now associate with McQueen, which really are the things in the movie that we associate with the movie. In the cooler, with the baseball glove and the great sound. The ch. The motorcycle chase wasn't even in the original film. And he would not have been a movie star had those things sort of not played out on screen. Now a cinematic rock star, the 33-year-old McQueen set his sights on Hollywood legend Edward G. Robinson. He came with the name Cincinnati. Here's legendary actor Carl Malden. Steve McQueen realized that he had a big challenge when he did Cincinnati Kid. Nancy, this is Eric Stoner, the Cincinnati Kid. Here's acclaimed director, Norman Jewison. That scene where he just looks at him and you feel the tension right away. I can get the money. I know you can. Robbins, he used to say, I'm going to gut him. I'm going to gut him. You're good, kid. But as long as I'm around, you're second best. You might as well learn to live with it. Here again is Gary Oldman. The art of it is to make it look effortless. Steve McQueen made acting look as easy as breathing. One calm evening while McQueen was getting some fresh air, he was approached by fellow actor Robert Vaughn. They had this big party, best in Hollywood, young people are there. I saw Steve out on the veranda looking out toward the ocean. I said to him, when you were back there in Greenwich Village with Neil on the back of your bike, did you ever think you'd wind up like this? There was a long pause and I, he said, what makes you think I'm gonna wind up like this? It was a terrifying moment, and he didn't even look at me. He just set it out into the air. Something was hovering over him all the time that made him aware that this was transitory, this life that he was living. Here again is Norman Jewison. He had all these stories about his his childhood, and and he was he was a bad kid. I mean, he was a. And he, because he was looking for a father, that's who, and I bring it all down to that. Steve was really looking for his father. McQueen was getting bombarded with scripts. One of them was a film called The Thomas Crown Affair, directed by Norman Jewison. 
McQueen wasn't interested in the role of a white-collar bank robber, but his wife, Neil, thought it was perfect for her husband and knew just how to spark his interest. One morning, we were having breakfast, and I said, gee, honey, that's too bad, you know, that uh, Norman doesn't want you for um, the crown caper because I think you could do it. And he was eating his French toast, and he sort of stopped. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Norman wants either Sean Connery or Rock Hudson for this part. I said, it's unfortunate, you know, because you could be, I think, really terrific in it. He said, you got to be kidding me. What do you mean he doesn't want me? I said, he doesn't. He doesn't want you. He's given the script to everybody in Hollywood but you. Here's Jewison. I said, you're not right for it, Steve. My God, this man wears a shirt and tie. He's a, he's a Phi Beta Kappa, graduate of Dartmouth. He says, that's why I want to do it. But maybe that was it. Maybe that's why he did it, because I turned him down. <laughs> McQueen started his own production company, and Bullet became the company's first release. It was 1968, and the idea of playing an unconventional detective appealed to Steve. So did something else. When anyone ever does a top ten list of car chases on screen, it's always Bullet as number one. The interesting thing is that in the script, it just says really two words, and that is car chase. And in McQueen's head, he knew exactly what he's going to go for. Bullet was released in October 68. The reaction was absolutely through the roof, and the profits were just crazy. And Steve McQueen as Bullet just became an instant icon. This is truly where the Steve McQueen legend really takes off. He had the X Factor in big letters, the X Factor, sex appeal. Here's Steve's second wife, Allie McGraw. Every man I met wanted to be him. Every woman wanted to sleep with him. Every kid wanted to be mentored by him. He just had that extraordinary, charismatic, sort of sexual, but dangerous, but soft underneath, bright, street smart power. The X Factor indeed, and Allie McGraw hit it just right. When we come back, more on the life story of Steve McQueen, more on the life of Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. American Stories, you're listening to Cheryl Crow's Steve McQueen, and we return to Greg's story about the King of Cool. When it came to his children, the King of Cool had nothing but a warm heart. Here's daughter Terry, Neil, and son Chad. It was very important to him that my brother and I had a real sense of home. You know, we were able to go to him and talk to him, not just as a father, but as a friend. When the children were little, when they were first born, 
He really couldn't relate to them, you know. He just uh, sort of dismissed them until they were able to uh, become little persons. As soon as, as their personality started evolving, then Steve could relate to the little children. He instilled a lot of things in me and my sister that uh, he had learned. I think he, he used to say, uh, some to the effect that, that I mean, I, I've learned, so now it'll save you the bumps and the bruises. It was very important that we were not raised in the Hollywood, not to put down Beverly Hills, but the Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, you know, of children that had no values. We, um, we were raised with the values that I would hope I can manage to instill in my children. With success and money, Steve McQueen collected cars and motorcycles, and they all found a home in his garage. Car and motorcycle enthusiasts formed McQueen's inner circle of friends, admiring and respecting him not as a Hollywood figure, but as a man after their own macho hearts. Here's Chad. He dug hanging out with guys like that, you know? I mean, he's really, he was in his element. I think for him, doing movies was a battle. You know, it was a, he knew that he had to get his game face on. Motorcycles, he just blended in with the rest of the guys. One of the guys Steve McQueen dug hanging out with was Roger McGrath. And I dug hanging out with Roger too, although I know him as Dr. McGrath. You see, Roger is my former college professor in Southern California, who also happens to be one of the coolest guys I've ever met. So I gave him a call and asked the Pacific Palisades boy to tell me about the first time he met McQueen. He began by telling me about having just seen The Great Escape in the theater right before they met. And here is Steve McQueen, and of course, he was my favorite by far in there, and I think most American guys, because he was the quintessential American, you know, rebellious and defiant, and supremely uh, tough and talented, you know, with that just, you know, cocky... Uh, attitude and, and that certain hard edge to him, you know. And it's something I think we all, you know, deep down in our hearts thought was that was an American, you know, that was the way we should be. And he certainly captured that in The Great Escape. All right, uh, there I was up there on somebody's private road. It was 1964, I was 17, and a, a senior at Palisades, and uh, and I was uh, doing wheel stands, making a lot of noise on my match list over these speed bumps. And all of a sudden I hear this whoop, whoop. And I thought, oh, gee, that's nothing could sound like that except a V12 Ferrari, you know. And so I thought, oh, God, some uh, resident here. Uh, you know, this is all in a split second. I thought, well, yeah, I guess he has a right to be a a little upset maybe and uh, but then on the other hand I was I was 17 and of course full of it and so I thought uh, and then another and all of a sudden right next to me is a Ferrari 250 GT Berlinetta and I look over expecting to uh, see the driver looking over and giving me the one finger salute you know and then I thought, and then we'd, we'd pull over and, uh, you know, see what happens. And, and instead, I look over there, and it's Steve McQueen. You know, here's 
Mr. Great Escape. <laughs> and uh, he's looking over, and instead of the one finger salute, he's motioning. He's motioning like, follow me, follow me. And so I did. And uh, I followed him into the garage, into the garage, and he jumped out. He was he was dressed uh, you know, kind of casual, but but smooth. Maybe he'd been at a meeting in Hollywood. And he said, "Give me five minutes." And he uh, split into the house. And I sat there in the garage, looking at a couple triumphs of his. True to his word, five minutes later he comes out, and he's wearing Levi's, a T-shirt, and a sawed-off sweatshirt. And he grabs a pair of goggles off a peg on the wall, and he said, let's ride, let's ride. <laughs> so off we went, you know. Then in 1970, despite a broken foot from a motorcycle racing accident, McQueen would race the grueling 12 hours in Sebring, Florida. McQueen was neck and neck with Mario Andretti in the Ferrari 512S. With an average speed of 113 miles an hour, McQueen would challenge for the lead with his Porsche 908 Spider throughout the 12-hour marathon. In the end, Andretti won, crossing the finish line a mere 23 seconds ahead of the second place McQueen. And it must be noted that Andretti had a three-driver team while McQueen only had a two-man team. Then McQueen threw everything into his 1971 auto racing movie Le Mans. With more than 70,000 hours of racing footage, nobody knew what the film's storyline was, and it was a critical and box office failure. His production company collapsed. He lost his agent. His 15-year marriage to Neil ended. The IRS presented him with a $2 million tax bill, and the finger of blame for all of it was pointing directly at Steve McQueen. It was a long fall from the top, and McQueen hit every step on the way down. And the final crash and burn occurred one night with a guy named Charles Manson and his so-called family. Steve McQueen was, was invited to uh, the house of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And the only reason he didn't was because on his way there, he saw a young girl hitchhiking, picked her up, and off they went. But then when he found out the next morning what happened, completely uh, became unglued. We have a weird homicide. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. One officer summed up the murders when he said, in all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. His paranoia had gone through the roof. The ghastly murders convinced McQueen that the deranged hippies and so-called flower children were out to get him. It turned out that McQueen had cause to be spooked. During the Manson family trial, it was revealed that McQueen was on their kill list, along with Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Tom Jones. Now we all know that Jesus walked on water, but did you know that Chuck Norris can swim on land? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right. Steve McQueen was so macho that after Chuck saw him in the classic motorcycle documentary On Any Sunday, he had a wish. Here's Chuck Norris. 
I saw a movie call on any Sunday. I said, if there's any one actor I'd like to meet, that's the man I'd like to meet. And I'm in my karate school in Sherman Oaks, and I get a call, and my one of my instructors comes to me and says, uh, there's a call from Steve McQueen. I guess you're kidding. And so Steve became one of my private students and trained with me for uh, several years. I did my first film, and after I finished the film, I went and saw it, and I thought, it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And Steve uh, came and saw it, and he said, well, it's not that bad of a film, but let me give you some advice. And when we come back, the last installment of the life of Steve McQueen, here on Our American Stories. Listening to the soundtrack from the Magnificent Seven. And when we last left off, Steve McQueen had just seen one of Chuck Norris's first movies and was about to give him some advice. Here's Chuck. He said, You are verbalizing things on the screen that we have already seen visually. And movies are visual, it's a visual thing. This is another thing. Let your character actors fill in the plot of the movie. And when there's something pertinent, very important to say, then you say it. He said, then the people will remember what you say. He said, that's what you've got to have in your movies. Memorable lines. The great comeback started with the 1972 film, The Getaway, which was the first of three big powerhouse films and performances for McQueen in the 70s. He followed that up with Papillon in 1973, and it was on the set of Papillon where legendary stuntman Stan Barrett, the former Golden Gloves champ, motocross racer, and black-belted Air Force veteran, had an unusual talk with his friend Steve McQueen. Here's Stan Barrett from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. He said, have you seen JN around? And J.N. Roberts was the best desert racer at the time. He said, well, what do you think? He said, he's really pretty far out there, this religion thing with him. I said, look, Steve, he's off the drugs. He's not doing this and that. I said, he's pretty excited about it. And Steve said, well, you know, I'm I'm religious too. I've gone to church. And I said, Steve, because you go in and out of a barn don't mean you're a cow. Normally that would have zapped somebody else uh, and might have been a put down, but, but Steve wanted to listen a little bit more. Stan basically asked, you know, do you have a relationship with God? That's, that's the key. I told Steve, I think, my story and, uh, you know, how I came to Christ and how to change my life. And he was not offended. He was inquisitive and listened to what I had to say. So, so Stan left McQueen two books, including Mere Christianity. You know, I said, Steve, this ain't no rehearsal, man. You know, you're not getting out of here alive. And I said, you know, you'd better think about it. In 1977, McQueen not only left his second wife, Allie McGraw, but he also left Hollywood, something no Hollywood star had done before. 
When the offers kept coming, McQueen ripped the mailbox from its post and tossed it into the ocean and told his agent to charge $50,000 just to read a script. Here again is Steve's son, Chad. I think when you get to some sort of stardom like that, you would you say, well, is this all there is to it? I mean, I thought there was more out of life, and I think he was searching for that. At 47, McQueen decided to start a whole new life. At 23, Barbara Minty was the perfect partner. It was almost inevitable, but Steve got interested in airplanes. After moving 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles to Santa Paula, Steve was looking for a flying instructor at the local airport. So he was given the name of Sammy Mason, who um, was a stunt pilot uh, and a test pilot for Lockheed and a very, very, very well-respected man. Here's McQueen's widow, Barbara Minty. I've never seen him really respect somebody so much. Really? I mean, Sammy was everything in his eyes. Steve saw in my dad something, you know, that I just took for granted. You had to respect him. He didn't demand it, but you just wanted to give it to him. Mm -hmm. He recognized in him a, a spirit of confidence, a spirit of peace. You know, it's hard to describe, but when you're around him, you, you, know, you just really felt comfortable. He had been looking for father figures all of his life, and, and he definitely found one in Sammy. He was his mentor, um, his hero, his... Yeah his everything. They just became solid, solid friends and um, they had a family life that I'm pretty sure that Steve had never experienced and they they just accepted him, took him into their hearts, took him into their home and um, Sammy was so solid spiritually. Yeah. He wasn't a preacher, yeah. he lived it. And finally one day he basically said, what is it about you that's different? I can't quite put my finger on it. And Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a boarding in Christian. He came home one day and he says, Honey, put a dress on. We're going to church. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It came completely, completely out of the blue. It wasn't Sammy asking Steve to come to church. It was Steve asking Sammy if he could come to church with him. My dad told me, he says, you know, Steve asked if he could go to church with me. So I, I thought, well, that's, that'll be a one-time thing. You know, Steve and his wife, Barbara, uh, went to church with Sammy and his wife, Wanda, uh, faithfully every week up in the balcony of the, of the uh, Ventura Missionary Church. Here's then-pastor of Ventura Missionary Church, Leonard DeWitt. After church, I was standing out in the foyer greeting people and uh, felt somebody tap me on the shoulder. And I turned around and uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I'm Steve McQueen. And I said, hi, Steve. He, he just had a bunch of things he wanted to know uh, about the Christian life. What about the Bible? And yeah. can you really rely on it? And yeah. so forth. His questions were really good. And so after two hours, he sat back and he said, well, that's all of my questions. And I said, Steve, I have one. And he, he grinned. He said, you want to know if I'm born again, don't you? And I said, that's really what's important to me. And so then he said, you remember the Sunday that you invited people who wanted to receive Christ? When you gave that invitation, he said, that's when I accepted Christ. It sort of all clicked that if I could be forgiven, I can start all over again, and, and I can have that inner peace that I wanted for so many decades. Going to church and, and 
Sammy, I think, helped him a lot. I mean, his whole life just changed. The King of Cool was now doing one of the most rebellious things he had ever done in his life. But about six months after becoming a Christian, several friends began noticing McQueen's unhealthy appearance. Here's what Roger McGrath saw while spending time with Steve at the Santa Paula airport. And then one day I came home and I remember I I told my wife that Steve kind of let himself go. I think I used the term, oh, he's looking kind of rasty, you know. Um, And then I was out there a couple weeks later hanging out with him. His abdomen was kind of protruding a bit. And Steve was always a very lean guy without an ounce of extra anything on him. Probably a little bit under five uh, ten and uh, probably didn't weigh more than 150 and so it looked like something was kind of pushing out against his t-shirt and he kind of uh, looked and it can help me noticing and he, he said I ah, said I've been trying to keep it quiet it's uh, it's the big C you know it's cancer here's Allie and Barbara 50 years old it was way too early for this story to happen and yet He'd been exposed to asbestos, which is, I gather, what was the specific root of that cancer. He was in the Marines, and he was cleaning up the, um, of course, he went and chased some girl, and he got in trouble. And they made him clean out the hulls of these ships, and they had asbestos. That's where he breathed in the asbestos, and asbestos takes, mesothelioma takes probably, usually 20-some years to get into your body and get going. Here's Steve's close friend and racing buddy, Bud Eakins. He got very, very close with people, like he was trying to make amends for uh, his past life and and trying to make up for everything uh, to clear his way, you know, to God. Steve also made a phone call to his wife, Neil, for the many indiscretions he committed during their marriage. On November 3rd, 1980, As McQueen's visit with the Reverend Billy Graham was wrapping up, Steve turned to his new friend and called out, I'll see you in heaven. Four days later, Steve McQueen was dead. Right then, right here, the King of Cool made the ultimate great escape to his forever home with his forever father, the King of Kings. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's a heck of a story. And I think I know a lot about acting and actors, but my goodness, Greg, great job on that. And, you know, you heard that great line from The Son, and The Son had said that, you know, the guy, the guy who he loved, his father, had experienced this stardom, but that there had to be more in life. There had to be something more than scripts and fame. And by the way, we we hit that so many times. And unlike so many other stars who end up killing themselves, McQueen did something different. He went and searched for some kind of deeper meaning in his life. And he sought out other sources of meaning and other friendships. And you won't hear this kind of story anywhere else, but here on Our American Stories, we pull no punches. We take the stories where they go. And this one ended beautifully. Steve McQueen's life story here on Our American Stories. And you can hear all that we do. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we go out as we started this segment 
with the sound from the Magnificent Seven. And watch Steve McQueen's acting, particularly in the Thomas Crown Affair. It may be as good a piece of acting as you've ever seen, and the same with Sand Pebbles. Steve McQueen's story here on Our American Story. stories and it's time for our weekly first job segment where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first jobs what it was what they learned how it helped them get to where they are today and oftentimes funny stories from that first job and if you have a first job story give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there or leave us your information and we'll help you record it Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Today's story is about Shahid Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan who is now a billionaire, thanks to this country and the opportunity it gave him, which he's since spread to more people, employing over 13,000 Americans at his company, Flexingate, which we'll hear about more later. He also owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not bad, for an immigrant. In this first clip, which we got from Forbes and some of the terrific interviews they conduct there, we learn that he's 16 years old and decides to attend the University of Illinois. This is back in 1967. And when he arrives, he arrives in the middle of a blizzard. Indeed, it's the first time he's ever seen snow. And walking through that snow in Champaign, Illinois, to the local YMCA, his shoes start falling apart was he ever wondering whether he just made, at this moment in his life, a big mistake? It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this. And uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes um, and you go through the socks, I mean, I have that to this day (laughs) where I'm hardwired, I can sense something like that. But, uh, and... If, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's, uh, there ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said, <laughs> they were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour. And I said, you know, this can really, this is going to be great. And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day and thinking, my God, what a great country, Uh, because I am making more than 99.9% of the people in Pakistan. And 
then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So, so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. There's got to be a pony somewhere. I just love that. I love that attitude. So he graduates at 21 with a mechanical engineering degree. While at Champaign at the University of Illinois, he meets his bride. But this was a pretty tough time economically, even for a guy with an engineering degree. And remember, he's an immigrant from Pakistan, so he has to hit the pavement. Let's take a listen to more. Uh, you know, in the 70s, when there was no connectivity, obviously, uh, email or how you got your resume out. I mean, I literally, I went door to door because, um, you know, I was a foreign student, but you could work legally in those days for 18 months. Uh, and I would start off in the morning, uh, just going door to door, industrial parks and what have you. And I did that for several months. Uh, and then uh, one day, uh, this blacksmith shop of all places in Urbana uh, was looking for somebody to come in and do everything. Uh, uh, weld, grind, and, you know, I was able to get the job. At the blacksmith he worked for, they designed custom trucks for farmers, one-offs. Shahid says that's how trucks were sold in those days, and they used to weld all these parts together. And the owner, who was a farmer, asked himself, could they do this better? Shahid came up with the idea of using stamping presses to make a one-piece uniform bumper. It looked a lot better. You didn't have the seams from welding. It lasted a lot longer, and it had a lot lower cost. And from that one idea, the owner said that he made more money in one year than the 40 years he worked in the field as a farmer and decided that he needed to sell the business. Then in 1978, when the second energy crisis hit the auto industry, Shahid decided that the real market opportunity was selling direct to the car makers, and he started his own company. He started out by employing just one other person. The auto industry was not very receptive to smaller companies. And they would look at designs and they say, okay, we'll pay you and, uh, you know, use some of those. But uh, uh, GM was coming up with a small truck. This is in 78 because the energy crisis had hit. And I had a, they had missed the weight target and the guy uh, was about to get fired. So at a, as a really act of desperation, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this design, authorize GM to buy the design, so we can lower the inertia weight, show better fuel efficiency, and save the program. Uh, and except they couldn't make the part. And uh, then they turned to me and said, okay, you know, if we give you a purchase order, will you be able to do it? And, I mean, I'll never forget it. You've got to remember, I mean, this in the 78... GM was probably close to 5% of the GDP of America. And there you have it. What a story. And by the way, soon after that purchase order from GM, and what a big deal to get that first purchase order, every new company is dying to land that big one from General Motors or IBM or some big company because that's how you grow into a bigger company yourself. He went from one employee to 53 and now has 13,000. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our weekly first job segment, Immigrant Shahid Khan's Story. He started as a dishwasher, was hired on his second day in this country, making $1.20 an hour. He thought that was just dandy. 
He was making more than 99% of the people where he'd just come from, Pakistan. And he said that this money wasn't like a melting ice cube. It was something he could replenish through work. He discovered his American dream within 24 hours of being an American. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Stories. our American stories and it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people it's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal and of course it's Heidi Mitchell and her latest question why do some people have inescapable foot odor and thus the music and Heidi by the way has just recently moved to Chicago and of course because of her move move the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor welcome Heidi that's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. <laughs> hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all, all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet. And one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like, it. I don't know, like you've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it. And it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and, and you know, we, we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when, we t- when I brought it up to, to my wonderful editor, they thought that was a great idea, and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history that I had growing up. And by the way, we yep. did everything. And he's, that, that odor sounded... No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross-country runner. And, and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot. And, and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house. And it infected yeah. the clothes. Like, my clothes smelled. My, my, my I smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh, so, so, I know. So, so does your husband, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human. And I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. (laughs) 
Anyway, so for, I don't know why, yes, but it, it, they, podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so you know, we're, we're, I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also, because you, you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore, there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much, you know, your odor, your body is producing, that this doctor that I spoke to, um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she, she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. So and, and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than 250,000 sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you don't even want to know how many <laughs> um, bacteria, oh, you know. Yeah. It's, I, gross. I, uh, it's gross. Uh, it's gross. And, and so, <laughs> so, so what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you, what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the, so the first thing, so she said so you can't really fix it, but you can help. Dim, you know, diminish it. Like it's, he'll outgrow it, hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to um, to get synthetic material that is sweat. What is it? Wicking. So as long as so he, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this. Um, it's called it's called um, smart wool. So it's actually it's it's I think a mix a blend of merino. Anyway, this this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your, foot, your foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh, so I know, horrible. it's pretty gross. <laughs> so even if you clean your foot, and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's going to, it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame this, this stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus so you can get a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot and like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't, they don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully like for 24 hours and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that- then you want to use, these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing, and by the way, this (laughs) periodically worked when we did it, is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the, I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, and for him, I think he's, he's embarrassed. Um, I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like Febreze can work, and I said this is going to mask the odor, um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water she puts on the rubber. I can't believe a flip-flop would smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. 
um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water she recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Fully. That would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze and, and also what's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so- home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like thirty minutes, and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something, and you stick your feet in there. Um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled, and that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria, and it will it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, so I can tell you that. I just throw them out well, when I'm, they're really smelly. I'm, hope, I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, he actually did grow out of it, but I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just creep, it would just creep out. And it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And by the way, that leads me to one last thing because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last a few weeks ago. I get into a cab and, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about like body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, really bad body odor? It's just brutal lighting. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just, you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's, it's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor and as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So this is good <laughs> news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And <laughs> this could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home <laughs> and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do.
This is Our American Stories, and kids are going back to school and college freshmen. They're moving out of the house for the first time. Well, one can hope. This can be an exciting time for the kids, but hard and scary for the parents. Today, we have on Howard and Jill Singer to discuss this very topic. They've spoken on this subject for eight years standing, helping over 40,000 parents. They have both been members of the Aztec Parents Association at San Diego State University in California, where they gave the orientation for incoming freshman parents. Thanks so much for joining us, Howard and Jill. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Before we start, and Jill, let me start with you. Um, How did you and your husband meet? Where were you uh, when you met in your lives? Did you ever think it would come to you really getting known for counseling parents and adults about kids in college? Well, we actually met at a college. We met at the University of Miami, uh, October 18th, 1970. So we're about to celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary, actually. Kind of, we're dinosaurs. But we did meet at a university, and we are very proud to say we have put four young people through college, our children, so four through college, two through law school, because we are the proud parents of boy-girl twins. They went to law school, and then we have two more, and one went had, earned a master's degree. So we, we're kind of a crystal ball for parents that we survived and thrived putting and dealing with all this uh, emotional, financial chaos and and proudness, so to speak. Yeah, and the stakes, frankly, Jill, have gotten higher than ever with the cost of college. I mean, the costs are just, it's no joke now for families to do this. That increases the pressure on everyone. Howard, what, what, what did you do for a living, and, what, and, and this goes to Jill, too, that led you to this? Where, where was your area of expertise, and who well, were you before you did this, <laughs> professionally? Well, actually, I'm a CPA, and my wife was a college professor. So we, we have, uh, when we speak, we, we really talk about, you know, two aspects. One is the financial side, and, and as you said, Lee, it is a, you know, college now is not um, an entitlement, it's a privilege, and that's what I talk to parents about, that you're about to turn over a six-figure lump of money to some organization, and would you not ask for a return on investment? So I, I talk about holding your child responsible and accountable, but your role is different. Now you're a coach and a mentor. And, 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 and that's what we're not uh, teaching. Uh, Jill, on the other hand, being a professor, uh, she has wonderful uh, examples of what not to do uh, as your child you know, you know, migrates through college. And let's talk about, before we get into what you do and what you teach, you know, I think some parents are at a crossroads and they've got a kid who wants to go to college and maybe another kid who doesn't, and they're not sure sure what to do with that kid who doesn't want to go to college. And what is your opinion about the number of kids who may feel compelled to go to college who maybe shouldn't be in college? Talk about that before we dig into the the substance of what you're doing. Well, you know, from a professional, I I spent my last, uh, 16 years with as an executive with IBM, and uh, I specialize in manufacturing consulting. And there's so many wonderful opportunities for for children and who don't go to college. I mean, here in America, we're so short of 
of uh, vocational skills that are very high paying. Uh, welders, for example. Um, so there's many, many occupations here in the United States that if your child does not want to go to um, college, let them look into vocational, electricians, plumbers, um, uh, people who repair and install air conditioning. I mean, there's so many outstanding high-paid fields now for vocations that, you know, it doesn't make sense all the time to send a child to um, college. You know, we had a young man on named Alex or, or Anthony Solis, and we did a story about him. He had been drifting in high school, not sure what to do, wanted to make his parents proud, happened to step into this welding class, and the next thing you know, he was at a major shipyard, and he looked around and he said, this is for me. And at 19 years old, he was, he was saving up for his first home, had a lot of pride in what he did. And the response to that segment was remarkable. And Jill, talk about that as well. Howard talked a little about it. And then we're going to dig into the advice you give parents who decide to choose college for their kids. College is for people that want, young people that want to be there because it is a big step into adulthood. It's a wonderful step. Wonderful opportunity to learn and grow and mature. And you have to be responsible because it's your full-time job when you go to college. Your job is to be in class every day, every class, and to spend a majority of the rest of the day and week studying. And whatever's left over is for extracurricular. That is part of the socialization. But you have to go into college with the mindset that this is your full-time responsible job, that your parents, whether it's your parents or the government loaning you money or a guardian helping you or a grandparent, this is your obligation because you're, someone is funding your opportunity. And if you're there, someone else isn't having the opportunity. Another child isn't. So it's a very responsible time in a young person's life. What a good word to use. You've used it four times in one sentence, the word responsible, and we love the word here on Our American Stories. I'm going to stick with you, Jill. So how did you stumble into this? I mean, when was your first, when did you realize you had done your first orientation gig? Did you stumble on it? How did it happen? It actually happened when our uh, daughter, Jacqueline, who is 12 years younger than our twins, they were already into college, out of college, and working as attorneys, and Jacqueline was about to go off to San Diego State. I'm a journalist, taught journalism at many universities around the country, also was with the Washington Post and the Miami Herald, People Magazine. Anyway, I wrote a story about sending a child off to college for the Orange County Register, and the folks at San Diego State read it, and they asked if Howard and I would like to be on the Aztec Parent Board, a board that is run by the uh, Division of Student Affairs at San Diego State, that helps kind of be the eyes and ears, the parent eye eye and ear of San Diego State. Actually, San Diego State is a pioneer in parent programs. They are committed to the belief, and they have statistics to support it, that parent involvement in student, with their student in college as a mentor and a coach brings about better grades, retention, and successful graduation. So we were all for it, and they asked us if we would like to speak and tell our story to the thousands of parents that come every year to San Diego State for freshman orientation. And, and we the- have been doing stand-up. We try to make it humorous because you better have a sense of humor when you send your child <laughs> off to college. Because right before you send them, 
they get real nasty, and every parent nods their head in agreement, and I tell them it's because it's very hard for your student to say goodbye. So they get nasty, McNasty, so that you're happy they leave, even though we know you're not happy for them to leave necessarily, and very hard for them to say goodbye. By the way, so our, our, young, our youngest, yeah. our youngest uh, employee here, Faith, who's just recently out of college, is laughing the hardest at what you say. because she's, <laughs> she's closest to it, Jill. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Howard and Jill Singer, and they're going to give us and you that advice, their story, Howard and Jill Singer's story, here on Our American Stories, kids going back to college, parents' advice from parents, well, who know best. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return with Howard and Jill Singer, and they've both been members of the Aztec Parents Association at San Diego State University in California, where they give the orientation for incoming freshman parents. And again, thanks, Howard and Jill, for joining us. Before we get into that advice, on my prep sheet, I learned that your daughter, after leaving college, well, she took a sort of a segue that most kids don't. She decided to join the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, Talk about that. That's fascinating. Well, I think what's most fascinating is that uh, she was essentially a kid who was Velcroed to me, didn't really even want to go to sleepovers, went to San Diego State University, found her independence, her passion, her being responsible for her own goals. And upon graduation, she said, I'm going to Israel. I'm going to become a citizen, and I'm going to serve in the Israel Defense Force. We were all kind of like, wow, we were knocked out. We just really were shocked that she was going to make this huge adventure, and she went. Three days after graduation or so, she boarded a plane from California to New York, and an Aliyah flight, as they call it, citizen, new citizen's flight from New York to Tel Aviv. She did not speak Hebrew. She did not know one person in Israel, and she made her way. She is now bilingual in English and Hebrew. She served admirably in two, in, as a educator in a to- combat tank unit of the IDF and uh, was applauded by fellow soldiers who were very proud to think an American would give up the quote-unquote li- li- life of luxury to come serve their country and, as she feels, her country. And I, it all stems back to we needed to let her go. We needed to cut the, not cut the cord, but kind of shear it a little bit and allow her to do what she wanted to do, but always be. Because we were at the end of that phone when those calls would come, and she was homesick, and young people get homesick at college. 
and you can't kind of like start bawling with them or sobbing. You have to put on a happy, snappy face and let them vent and then tell them they're going to be terrific and hang up and let them be terrific. So we carried through what we tell parents when we had to live it with our own child, Jacqueline. Yep, and and in a dangerous situation too. There was a there were two flaring and flashpoints, uh, and I would say almost mini wars with Hamas at the time. So you had to be worried, parents as well. So let's dig into that orientation, Howard. How do you start it off? Where do, where do you start? Because parents are defensive. I mean, I don't know many parents who want to hear parenting advice, and yet at the same time, we're dying to know what works or doesn't work too. Well, you know, I, I really start out the conversation is, um, as a joke that, you know, I'm the serious one and I'm a CPA and, and ask parents who would take, you know, a hundred and 120, 130, $150,000, write someone a check and give it to that person and say, let me know how it goes in four years. I mean, this probably, other than buying a home, this is the most significant investment a parent's going to make. So I talk about that. If you're going to make an investment, shouldn't you expect a return on investment? So then the question comes, well, okay, yeah, I should expect a return on investment. So now the question is, how do you monitor that return on investment without uh, becoming a helicopter parent? And that's what I talk about. And how do parents do that, Jill? How does a parent coach and mentor and not be a Budinsky, a, a, a chopper parent, which is, I think, what all of us worry about, and that's the worst kind of parenting, the helicopter well, parent. We actually t- tell the parents when they arrive at San Diego State that uh, if they've come via helicopter, and they all know what I mean, that they take their helicopter up to Camp Pendleton and the university pays storage for four years, and they get the message. The message is your student is leaving, and your life, as you've known it, is going to change. They're never going to be there full-time like they were from birth to 18. And that, and that strikes a chord, and many parents get really weepy, and, I, and we understand that. They're no longer in control of the day-to-day. You mean the kind of parent that runs to CVS Pharmacy at midnight to buy poster board because their student who said they do it didn't do it. We tell the parents that um, we ask them, did you come via helicopter? And they all kind of laugh and they know what we're talking about, that we don't allow helicopters at San Diego State. And I kiddingly tell them that they can fly their helicopter north to Camp Pendleton and we pay the storage on it for four years, meaning that it's time they let go. And it's very hard for parents because once that student walks out of their house, it's the last time their family life is the same because the student leaves and the day-to-day that all the parents are accustomed to from birth to 18 is changed. It's completely changed, and that's how the parent has to see it. It's now time for the parent to be not a parent-doer anymore, the meaning that they don't run to the CVS at midnight to buy poster board for their student who said they would remember to buy it but didn't remember. You don't do that anymore. Your student is now responsible for their own success, and that's the message. If you screw up, it's on the student. It's not on the parent. We don't allow parents to do homework. Our parents, by federal law, cannot call professors and ask how their student is doing, just like you wouldn't call your student's boss and say, 
oh, how's Mary or John doing in the workplace? Absolutely not. It's up to the student to learn the process of how to be successful. And it's out there. And every university today, and I'm proud to say especially San Diego State University, has processes in place for students to succeed. Everybody's goal is for student success. And what's the hardest part, uh, Howard, about talking to parents? Where do you find the most resistance, uh, the most questioning, the most doubt? Uh, talk about that. Well, I, I think it's the area is um, accountability. You know, I, I, I tell parents a, a couple of funny stories. Um, I, I viewed myself as the coach of Team Howard, and I had players on my team who I was sending to um, college. And I, I would tell my players, look, if you can afford on, uh, you know, spring break to fly to Cabo and have a good vacation because I'm making sacrifices, then you can afford to buy, uh, pay for your own tuition. So what I, what I try to talk to the parents is, is that, you know, you need to hold your children financially, you know, responsible, and you're making sacrifices, and they need to think about all the sacrifices that you're making and that this is a full-time job and that it, it's not an entitlement, and I, and I keep on using that word. It's a privilege that you're providing your student, and your student needs to take it seriously, and they need to understand the magnitude of investment and sacrifice that you're about to make. I think a lot of times parents are essentially afraid or not comfortable to tell their children what their expectation is, that they now feel they have to allow their student to go off freely and run amok, and that's part of the growing up process. That's not really fair. They're still young at 18. They need quite a bit of guidance, and they need to be coached by you to make the right decisions so their life goes along well. So standing up and speaking to your child, especially in advance of them going to college and every day they're there or that you speak with them, is, is that's your, your role as a parent, not letting them just, oh, they went there to have a great social life. No, that's not what college is about, not in this generation. Everybody needs that education. So parents have to say they have a right to be part of the success. And Howard, tell us about one of your favorite moments since you started doing this. Um, my, my favorite mo- moment is when I tell parents a funny story about my son. Um, you know, I, I, I tell everyone, if you give your child their allowance for the entire semester, day one, by day three, it, it's gone. So what, what I did was give my children credit cards, and I monitored what they were spending. And I tell a story that one day... I got on my American Express bill an item, and it said $400 for fish tickets, and, and fish being P-H-I-S-H. L- little did I know that fish was a musical group, and when I tracked down my son and I said, what, did you, what fish did you buy for $400? He says, oh, Dad, I, I, I went to um, uh, a concert and." Uh, you know, my friends, you know, sent me the money and I just bought the tickets and I tell them, well, take all the money and put it in an envelope and send it to me. And, and these are the kind of experiences that parents are going to face where the child is making 
a very poor financial decision. So that, I, I, I tell that story, and, and the parents seem to relate. Gee, yeah, I was going to give my child a credit card. How do I prevent my child from uh, taking that credit card and, and do something silly? The one piece of advice I tell parents, which I, I, I would tell all your viewers, you know, today um, children are going to be sent credit cards by banks, and they're going to have 500 and and $1,000 um, credit lines and children not knowing about credit cards are going to blow through that and we're seeing a significant number of children coming out of college with credit card debt for not good things and indeed uh, this is the problem for parents everywhere and that's why we have Howard and Jill Singer on and they have both been members of the Aztec Parents Association of San Diego State University in California where they've given the orientation for incoming freshman parents. And Howard and Jill Singer, thanks for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. You bet. Thank you both. And this is Lee Habib, Howard and Jill Singer's story, here on Our American Stories. 